When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and tonight I'm going to be looking at the beginnings of Neville Chamberlain's uh, premiership, prime ministership um, and the foreign policy uh, situation that he inherited. Uh, the reason why I want to do this is because Chamberlain is uh, not so much a mythologised figure uh, or even demonised figure but an oversimplified figure. The the narrative that most people know is that Chamberlain visited Hitler uh, in 1938 in uh, Munich, um, and after several visits, um, uh, essentially uh, appeased uh, Hitler and handed over the Sudetenland on the assumption that there would be no further annexations. And shortly afterwards, in uh, early 1939, Hitler seized the remainder of Czechoslovakia and then in September 1939 uh, waged war against Poland, um, thus proving the policy of appeasement to have failed, which in, indeed it had. The thing about uh, appeasement at the time, appeasement has only really become a dirty word uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War. Appeasement at the time was seen, based on the context of the time, as a reasonable and rational policy. And it wasn't simply um, Chamberlain that thought that. There was a wide swathe of British public opinion and uh, opinion across the Britain's uh, political classes that thought much the same. Um, so I, I want to kind of dig into Chamberlain a little bit here and start to um, start to kind of re-examine some of the things that we, we assume uh, about him. So in, in this episode, I'm reading once again from Britain's War by Daniel Todden, which um, is a, a superb two-volume uh, book. I'm looking at uh, the first volume, 1937-41. And Daniel Todman writes, During the final years of the 1930s, the sense that another world war was coming grew increasingly strong. The prolonged anticipation 
of this second cataclysm was one of the key differences from the outbreak of its predecessor, which had come as a total shock to Britons in the summer of 1914. In 1937, however, it did seem that more sufferings might yet be averted. He writes about Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain arrived at 10 Downing Street, determined to sort out the potentially disastrous international situation. Chamberlain succeeded Stanley Baldwin in 1937. Britain now faced the threat of three wars at the same time, with Germany in Europe, with Italy in the Mediterranean, and with Japan in the Far East. As far as Chamberlain was concerned, collective security was dead and the League of Nations defunct. Of Britain's potential allies, France was politically unstable, the USSR was ideological and ideologically antipathetic, uh, and the USA, USA was unreliably isolationist. Until Britain's rearmament programmes were more complete, it was in a vulnerable position, but the scale of those programmes themselves now threatened the economic revival. In this hazardous environment, keeping the British Empire safe would require a balancing act of global scope and epic complexity. Now here is the, um, uh, the essence of Chamberlain's uh, policy of uh, appeasement. This is what it's all about. Chamberlain looking at the realities of the situation, recognising that um, war is perhaps unavoidable, but must be avoided nonetheless, and that if, uh, if anything, Britain needed time to rearm. And that um, the prospect of war in Europe, not only unthinkable to an entire generation of people that had fought the, the First World War, but also unthinkable to Britain's military planners that simply saw Britain as uh, unprepared uh, for the fight and also unable to defend the uh, entirety of the British Empire. This was exactly the sort of problem, writes Daniel Todman, that Chamberlain liked to solve. Five months into his premiership, he was already able to inform his sister that he had in mind far-reaching plans for the appeasement of Europe and Asia and for the ultimate check of the mad arms race, which, if continued, must involve us all in ruin. At the base of these plans were two assumptions. The first was that a war was in nobody's interest, and the second was that it should be possible to resolve all the aggressor's powers' grievances by a process of interlinked negotiation rather than ad hoc reaction. Being strong enough to make violence looked um, look unattractive was a key part of Chamberlain's approach, but he saw no point in making threats that the USA couldn't, uh, the, the UK, I beg your pardon, the UK could not back up, nor in constructing alliances that might precipitate an unnecessary war. So this was the uh, the world that Chamberlain viewed. He saw Hitler as a rational actor. There is a huge amount um, written about this. Um, uh, the, one of the key books on the subject was uh, A.J.P. Taylor's Causes of the Second World War. And um, in, in that, uh, A.J.P. Taylor very controversially said, well, Hitler was no more or less like any other um, uh, mountbank, he called it, um, of, of a leader. He said basically he was trying to seize as much as he could uh, using kind of brinkmanship and bluff for his country 
Um, whereas uh, other views, I think perhaps more realistic views of Hitler, um, if you uh, look particularly at Timothy Snyder, was that in, in his book Black Earth, is that Hitler wanted war. And Hitler wanted war because the, the, the war that Hitler wanted to fight was a racial war, and that Hitler's ideological worldview was racial. Um, and that uh, that all history was for Hitler was a racial struggle. These are the things that Chamberlain didn't perceive, um, and the idea that um, any leader would naturally wish to avoid war was something that, that was an article of faith to, to Chamberlain, that Chamberlain, when he finally did meet Hitler, became um, uh, firm of the idea that, that uh, Hitler could be reasoned with, uh, and that um, Hitler was, as a, as a rational actor, always inclined to, to avoid conflict, which of course turns out to not be true. Chamberlain found a welcome ally in the senior civil servant, Sir Horace Wilson, already installed in number 10 as a special advisor to the Prime Minister. Wilson was a self-made man, the son of a furniture maker, He'd entered the civil service in 1900 as a boy clerk and then taken a part-time degree at the London School of Economics. Having established a reputation for settling difficult industrial disputes during the Great War, in 1921 he was appointed permanent secretary to the Ministry of Labour, where he played an important part in ending the general strike. Although the unions resented him for his skill in unpicking their position before negotiations began, in 1930 the second Labour government made Wilson its chief industrial advisor, a title he retained for the rest of the decade. When Baldwin returned to Downing Street in 1935, he needed someone else to keep an overview of the business of government as it passed through the Prime Minister's office. Wilson was brought in to take up the job, and Chamberlain kept him on. So there you had the, the one of these kind of classic Downing Street double acts of a uh, chief advisor or a, a chief mandarin uh, and a prime minister. And prime ministers often lean on these figures um, and to, to act as almost the, the second brain, the decision maker. These two men had got to know each other well during the Ottawa trade talks in 1932. That's Todman. They were both hard-working, seemingly humorless figures with a strong grip on administration. Chamberlain's personality meant that his colleagues seldom became his comrades. And of the people he worked with, Wilson became probably the closest thing that he had to a friend. Sir Horace's position was powerful. All the papers coming into and out of 10 Downing Street passed through his office, and Chamberlain valued his advice on economic policy and the composition of his cabinet. On the 20th of May 1939, Wilson was made Permanent Secretary to the Treasury and Head of the Civil Service, which put him in charge of the appointment of all senior, civil, uh, senior, fickle, senior officials in Whitehall. Wilson's enemies saw him as a Cardinal Richelieu figure, pulling the strings of power behind the throne. Wilson maintained that he was servant, not master. He supported Chamberlain, but he did not control him. Before long, however, Chamberlain would come to rely on Wilson as a diplomatic go-between, as well as a domestic political fixer. This reflected not only their shared belief that the international problem could be solved by finding grounds for reasonable agreement, 
but also Chamberlain's desire, and like his predecessor, to take a firm control of foreign policy. Baldwin had um, little, uh, not necessarily little interest in foreign policy, but little ability in his eyes to determine it. It's worth just looking at Baldwin for a moment. Baldwin stepped down in 1937. He resigned um, his uh, prime ministership to King George VI. And uh, so essentially um, he was exhausted by the office. And he was exhausted by the, uh, the, the, the strains of dealing with the international situation um, and also the, the, the domestic demands for, for peace. In 1935, Baldwin had won a, a landslide election. And in 1936, um, a by-election that was uh, in, in Fulham um, was lost to the Conservatives, uh, to the, the national government as it was at the time, um, because of the, the implication that the government might start to rearm. Um, so Baldwin could say, well, you know, we, we have this, these threats emerging around the world, and yet there is no mandate in the country for rearmament. Um, it's wildly unpopular, and, and indeed it was. I've written in, I've talked in the past on this podcast about things like um, the uh, Peace Pledge Union uh, led by uh, Father Dick Shepherd of uh, St Paul's Cathedral and the popularity of the United Nations um, and the, um, the widespread desire to never fight a, a, another war like the First World War. Um, figures like Churchill, of course, criticised Baldwin, said to him, you know, you are placing um, the needs of the party over the needs of the country, uh, and rearmament is, is definitely needed, uh, irrespective of, of what the general public say. Baldwin had also got himself involved in the Abyssinia crisis in 1935, um, where Mussolini had invaded Abyssinia, and the British and French, um, the um, um, Samuel Hoare and Pierre Laval, um, the uh, British and um, uh, French uh, diplomats, um, and had uh, negotiated together uh, the secret Hall-Laval Pact, which essentially gave Mussolini uh, a free pass in uh, Abyssinia. The belief was that if one could keep uh, Mussolini sweet, then he wouldn't drift into um, Hitler's sphere of influence. Um, before 1936, the, um, uh, Mussolini was more likely to favour um, the, the, the two democratic states um, Britain and France, but as a result of the um, um, the uh, Abyssinia crisis, um, Mussolini, who is essentially given everything he wants by the uh, British and the French, uh, subsequently decides that seeing what Hitler has to offer is is well worth uh, well worth it too. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So uh, this was a, a, um, a, a huge, a huge disgrace. Um, and it, was, it led to... Uh, almost a fake dealt the um, League of Nations almost a fatal blow. The two powers that were meant to be uh, upholding the League of Nations more than anything else do more than any other power to uh, undermine it and to engage in secret treaties, the kinds of which it was already decided were were really really com- completely unacceptable in, in this new era of uh, of diplomacy. So you have one Prime Minister who is essentially defeated by matters of foreign policy. Not, that's not the only reason why he, he resigns. And a, a new Prime Minister determined not to be defeated by matters of foreign policy. Indeed, to finally resolve and solve these foreign policy questions was a dogged every Prime Minister since David Lloyd George. But there was a problem. Daniel Tobin writes... The new Prime Minister's determination to solve the European situation himself put him at loggerheads with the Foreign Office. His willingness to appease Hitler aroused shrill opposition from the Foreign Office's senior civil servant, Sir Robert Vansittart, and a long-term Cassandra of the dangers of German revival. Chamberlain also found himself in disagreement with the Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, who had grown used to doing what he wanted, while Baldwin was Prime Minister. Over the rights and wrongs of German expansion in Central and Eastern Europe, Eden differed little from the Prime Minister, although given his liberal reputation, he was anxious not to be seen to be giving in to dictators. Like Chamberlain, Eden also found Vansittart's incessant harping on the German threat unhelpful, and he had already lined up a possible replacement, Sir Alexander Cadogan an aristocratic career diplomat who Eden had got to know on Britain's delegation to the League of Nations. As soon as Baldwin had appointed him, Eden had invited Cadogan to return from his posting as ambassador to China so that he could serve as Vansittart's deputy and future successor, where Vansittart was volatile, spiky, and increasingly given to writing interminable memoranda on the need to stand up to Hitler. Cadogan was calm, smooth and pragmatic in his desire to match Britain's foreign policies with what it could actually do. For the moment, 
he was also more optimistic about the prospect of arranging a settlement with Germany. So this gives us some very valuable context. Um, as always happens, uh, particularly in Great Britain, they, uh, behind the doors of Number 10, there are conflicting um, priorities from ministers and senior civil servants about the, the policy to take. Chamberlain um, believed that a, an agreement with Germany was ultimately possible and began to build around him people like um, Wilson and Eden and Cadogan who uh, would then drown out the Vansittarts, the, the Doom players. Um, and also the way that Chamberlain saw things, the way that Chamberlain's cabinet began to see things, was that uh, one could only um, we could one could only have the foreign policy that one's military force can support, and so a kind of an element of pragmatism and realpolitik uh, underpinned what Chamberlain was trying to do. Chamberlain's ultimately kind of naive. Um, we only know this kind of after after the event was naive in his belief that a general settlement could be reached, but this was the, the this was the kind of the holy grail that politicians and diplomats, British politicians and diplomats, had been searching for since 1919, it, when it was fairly clear at the end of the Paris Peace Conference that uh, a, an imperfect peace, an incomplete peace, uh, on a transient one, ha had been created. Uh, there were, um, in the Genoa Conference, uh, at the Locarno Treaties, um, a successive attempts um, to create a, a kind of a, a more lasting settlement, meaning, for example, the, the Washington Naval Conferences. Um, and by the mid-1920s, there's almost a moment where it's, it's, it's thought that it's been achieved, it's been done. But uh, this was, was not, not to be. So here was, uh, by the late 1930s, when the kind of time is running short, and everyone's painfully aware of that, uh, a last-ditch attempt to create um, a, a, a lasting uh, world settlement. One of the, uh, the kind of the, the key sort of delineators of, of the, the, the 20th century um, is obviously the Second World War. And it's, it's important when you look at kind of different, the, the sort of the, the, uh, the levels of um, soft and hard power that Britain had before the Second World War, that British Prime Ministers, successive British Prime Ministers, took on the roles that US Presidents would have after the Second World War in terms of global diplomacy, of trying to uh, create um, settlements that would ensure uh, lasting years of peace, um, you know, however, however successfully or unsuccessfully. Um, the fact that no British Prime Minister has, after the Second World War, ever seriously seen that ever again as Britain's role um, uh, is quite telling. Um, Margaret Macmillan, in her book Peacemakers, wrote that um, the, the fact that there was indeed 20 years of relative peace between the great powers, um, of course not 20 years of peace at all because there are countless wars during that time, 20 years of relative peace between the great powers 
was actually a testament that things had gone as well as they possibly could do at the Paris Peace Conference. So, um, one key aspect of um, Chamberlain and Eden's relationship was uh, Eden's um, belief that the, the dictators of Europe couldn't be trusted and couldn't be dealt with and couldn't be negotiated with. Um, the thing that really set Chamberlain Eden, and Eden apart, writes Daniel Todman, was the Foreign Secretary's hatred of Mussolini. The Italian dictator's broken promises about non-intervention in Spain had left Eden deeply suspicious of any rapprochement. Compared to Chamberlain, Eden was much less worried about the risk of the empire being attacked simultaneously, simultaneously by Germany, Italy and Japan. That meant he had much more room to insist on a firm stance was taken with the Duce. Chamberlain, however, saw an improvement of relations with Italy as a stepping stone to a general European settlement. During the summer of 1937, he preferred recognition of, Italia, of, of Italy's conquest of Abyssinia in the hope of reducing tensions in the Mediterranean and severing the developing connection between Rome and Berlin. When Italy joined Germany and Japan in the anti-Comintern Pact that November, he saw it as further evidence of the need to bring Mussolini back, to, back on side. For Eden, on the other hand, it was proof of the uselessness of relying on Italian promises. So uh, this is a really interesting dynamic here. The, the worse uh, behaviour uh, in, in terms of uh, diplomacy and uh, war that Mussolini displays, the, the more kind of ag aggressive, acquisitive behaviour uh, that Mussolini displays, the more uh, uh, Chamberlain uh, convinces himself that this is evidence that we really should redouble our efforts to try to uh, bring Mussolini back on side by acknowledging that um, his acquisition of his Abyssinia is fine. And in a way, the uh, uh, policy of appeasement begins with Italy. The policy of appeasement begins not with Chamberlain visiting Hitler to offer him the Sudetenland. It begins with uh, Chamberlain offering Mussolini the Abyssinia, the recognition of the Abyssinia that he had conquered. In July 1937, a military scuffle between the Chinese and Japanese forces in northern China escalated rapidly into a full-blown but undisclosed war. As Japanese armies advanced rapidly in the north and fierce fighting raged all around the international settlement in Shanghai, China's nationalist government sought international support. Eager to tie the Japanese down in China, the Soviet Union sent arms and military advisers who would not sign an alliance that would drag the Red Army into the conflict. In the West, the nationalists aimed their diplomatic, diplomatic efforts at the United Kingdom, supposedly the other major power in East Asia. Aware as they were of the weakness of the defences in the Far East, the British did not do much to help. No British minister wanted to be dragged into a repeat of the Abyssinian debacle, with the League of Nations imposing sanctions on the Royal Navy uh, and the Royal Navy forced into a naval confrontation with the Japanese as a result. London therefore carefully diffused China's appeal to the League, removing any mention of a war which, could which would then have compelled action from the signatories of the Washington Treaty, and condemning Japan's actions without binding the UK to do anything about them. So here again we have an example of a Chamberlain's appeasement um, 
And I think before we are too quick to condemn, too quick to judge, too quick to criticise, the the fact is that Chamberlain uh, existed in a situation that, I mean, he was kind of largely optimistic about solving, but uh, to um, a great many people around him, it was an almost kind of Im- Im- impossible puzzle to solve. Ultimately, you know, within a, a decade, the British Empire is largely swept away by the uh, the war that that the, the then comes. the uh, The British are um, appalled by um, the uh, the uh, assault of Japan uh, against China. Um, but it's still easy enough for the British government to ignore because of the geography of the situation, um, the distance for um, the, the distance um, away that that China was, uh, and the ability to say, well, you know, we we know nothing of these people. Uh, to paraphrase a later uh, statement by Chamberlain. Anyway, we're going to look more at this period of time. Um, and Chamberlain's decision-making uh, in the next few weeks uh, as we um, focus on the uh, diplomatic processes um, that lead to the declaration of war by Germany um, on Germany by Britain uh, on September the 3rd, 1939. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, do swing by the Explaining History website, explaininghistory.org, um, it's really developing quite nicely now. We've got a huge. The uh, entire playlist is on the front landing page as you go there. There are some new articles, um, and you can support us on Patreon, uh, where you can get some exclusive content that I'm putting on there uh, at the moment. There's a, a great new um, uh, blog. I've recently done an essay about the Red Army faction, the Bader Meinhof Gang. Um, in the late 1960s and early 1970s in Germany, so check it out. Um, And there'll be some more news about the possibility of setting up the Explaining History, for want of a better word, university, coming sometime next year. Thanks very much, everybody. All the best. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.